Hello everyone, this is Asher and welcome to Living in This Queer Body, a podcast about barriers to embodiment and how our collective body stories can bring us back to ourselves. Thank you so much to everyone who supported this podcast and its inception and we are now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. You can listen on the website, livinginthisqueerbody.com. Follow me on Instagram at livinginthisqueerbody and sign up or RSVP for the launch party through the website. Sign up to be in my on my newsletter, which will help you find out about things like the launch party, upcoming workshops, how you can work with me in the future, and lots of other stuff. So I want to thank Ethan Philbrick, who did an amazing job with the music for the podcast, and to Jibs Cameron for designing my website, and to so many other people who've supported me. I really want to thank my Patreon supporters and anyone else who wants to join Patreon. That would be wonderful. We do need some funding for the coverage of transcription costs and editing. And so I really look forward to you listening to this episode. Regina Rock is our guest. Regina is an Ayurvedic counselor, 500-hour yoga teacher, bar fitness instructor, and breathwork healer living in Brooklyn, New York since 2004. In 2014, she received her Ayurvedic and yoga teaching certification from the Kripalu School of Yoga and Ayurveda and trained with the breathwork healer David Elliott in 2017. We have a really interesting conversation about the role of movement and dance early on in one's life and how that impacts embodiment and so much more. I really am grateful to Regina for participating in this interview and you can find out uh, all sorts of things about how to work with her, reach out to her and attend some of her upcoming um, classes and workshops through her website and Instagram at Wolf Magic Medicine. So please take a listen and please also one last request. Everyone you know, go to Living in This Queer Body on iTunes, subscribe and rate us five stars. Even if you have some issues, just DM me about those issues and Give us five stars because then other people can discover the podcast. It's a brand new budding podcast and it has, you know, a lot of potential, but we need to get the word out. So I would love it if you could help support and thank you for listening. Truly. So Regina, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. No, thank you. I'm excited. Okay. All right. Well, so I've been starting um, these episodes with a question, um, and then I want to get to what you want to talk about, anything you want to talk about. But I guess the first thing I want to ask is, what did you learn early on in your life about having or being in a body? Mm. It's hard for me to think back because I'm thinking so much of my opinion on it now. 
I'll say this about it because it really informs where I'm at right now in my life. I was taught from a very young age how to connect to my body because I started dancing when I was three years old because my mom claims that I had a ton of energy that I don't know if I believe that because I take naps a lot. (laughs) So my mom said, like, you have too much energy. You need to do something with all of this. And someone said you should put her in dance class. And I was immediately into it. And like I said, I... I just was, yeah, I was taught from a very young age how to move your foot and your ankle and your knee and your hips and your shoulders and your hands and your head. And that knowledge, I would say, even up until this point, is very much taken for granted. And I'm reminded on a daily basis of what a blessing and a gift that is to understand my body, understand how it works. Uh, things that I am capable of physically, things that I'm not capable of physically, and be able to like close my eyes and know exactly what I'm doing with my body in space, in time. So I would say from a very early age, I was taught how to connect to my body and surrounded by people who were also into movement exploration on like five days a week (laughs) up until just a few years ago. I I started dancing when I was three. I danced all throughout middle school, high school, got my BFA in dance, got my MFA in dance. And now what I do for a living is very much still connected to that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What's the, what's the part about what you think of it now, you know, kind of overlaying the the thoughts about that early experience? It's really hard for me to admit, but I'm reminded on a daily basis that not everyone has the opportunity to connect to their body, meaning so I pretty much exclusively teach bar fitness and yoga at this point. And I teach at a studio that kind of combines bar fitness, yoga, Pilates, even a little bit of hit cardio into one 55-minute class. And I spend almost every day teaching people how to understand their bodies. Mm -hmm. And there are times where I'll literally say, just do a bicep curl, send your hand towards your shoulder with your elbows lifted. And the amount of people who it's not that they can't do it. They don't understand where their body is. They'll just lift their elbow and I'll say, no, leave your, leave your elbow where it is and just move your hand. And that is a reminder that it's not that they, again, it's not that they aren't physically able to do it. It's such a reminder that they're they're in their head. So many people are just separated, Mm -hmm. like from their neck up is one thing and from their neck down is another. And it doesn't even occur to them that, oh no, you can connect all of it together. And so I spend most of my time really trying to get people to think of your body as one are many different things that, and there's so much that your body is capable of. And it's not about getting your leg over your head and being super flexible. It's about discovering all the different ways that you can move. And I forget it all the time. And every day is a reminder. Again, it's a blessing. 
it's something to have a lot of gratitude for that I spent so many years investigating movement and all that I'm capable of. And so it's very humbling. It's a very, very humbling experience and always, always, always reminds me of how lucky I am. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about your life as a dancer. It's just, it's Mm -hmm. interesting because, you know, I've, I've been kind of knowing who you are and witnessing your career. And I saw you dance in ballets and um, I'm just, it's interesting to think about how important your evolution as a person now is how it's connected to being put into dance, you know, like basically placed into this environment that you ended up really, you know, it sounds like you really ended up connecting with, but I don't know, what are your feelings about being a dancer and your life as a dancer, both as a child and, and as an adult? I think for me, dance turned into something way more of like a spiritual experience than my mom expected. I think she just put me in it because uh, my mom very much comes from a family where you just work and work and work and there's no downtime. And if you ever sit still, you're lazy. And so she kind of just put that work ethic into dance. It could have been anything. She could have put me in karate. She could have put me in art classes. Mm -hmm. I think she would have just been just as militant. It was just like something you had to do. And, uh, it took a lot of therapy and it still does to uh, understand where she was coming from mm. and know that she's trying her best because it, it did at around in high school, there were certain dance classes I didn't want to take, but she, the thought of like stopping and quitting was just, she just, there was no doing mm-hmm. that. And mm-hmm. so again, it just was like um, almost like quitting a job. But that being said, I would have never quit. I loved it, and I still do. Now I found different ways. I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I found different things that I'm just as into. I've gotten way more into strength training and building uh, strength, toning muscles. And uh, it's kind of the only time in my day where I'm completely focused. If I'm in, for example, I've been taking a lot of boxing classes that have a lot of cardio and it's 45 minutes of my muscles and body just burning with fatigue and using my body in all these ways that I'm just discovering. And I absolutely love it. That's a nightmare for some people. They absolutely would hate it. (laughs) Whereas again, it's kind of the only, it's like 45 minutes of my day that I am solely focused on just moving and punching the bag and things like that. So Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's like, it's something that's been on my mind lately, which is I haven't felt this connected to my body since maybe undergrad when I was dancing a lot and taking a lot of classes. And so boxing and yoga and like hit cardio classes aren't dance. I'm still connecting to my body in that same way, still tuning in, breathing, noticing how I can move, challenging myself. And I think in the end, that's what I enjoy doing. I love Mm -hmm. really pushing myself to see what can I do. I've been in yoga classes that were so hard and 45 minutes into it, we start doing these crazy complicated asanas and uh, inversions 
and I'll just try it and I'm able to do it. And I really, I often take for granted the fact that I can see someone do it. The teacher can show you, show me how to do something, show Mm -hmm. the class how to do this. And then I try it and I'm able to do it. It's almost like I look, I, my brain computes it and then like sends it to my body to do Mm -hmm. it or at least try. And uh, I really, really enjoy doing that. I like to see what my body is capable of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Do you find yourself, I don't know, I'm just thinking about all of these different kind of worlds, uh, healing, movements, all of those these worlds that you've kind of been in, like the dance world, the, you know, we haven't talked about breath work yet, but breath work, yoga, bar, fitness, you know, all of these worlds. Do you find that how you relate to what your body is doing or capable of doing or how you feel about that kind of ease with which you're, you know, experiencing, challenging yourself or whatever, how, how those different environments impact how you how you feel about the experience. I mean, obviously you're affected by the the environments, but you know, what, what comes to mind when you think about the different environments or do you find it, you said it was like a spiritual experience. Do you feel like maybe in part, it's just you and your body in space and time and you have your own way of connecting to. I think I do. Uh, Mm -hmm. And they're all connected, whether it's interesting. I think, I just based on my experience as a teacher and also as someone who takes a lot of movement classes, I think there's a lot of people who separate them and kind of only do one thing and think that this one thing they're into can't inform another. So for example, there's people who are really into going to sound baths or yoga and the thought of doing a like, soul cycle or Pilates class, they're like, Ugh, no, they have a lot of preconceived notions. As someone who does a variety of those kind of classes, they all inform each other. Mm-hmm. I have the same experiences in breath work that I do in the boxing class. Like, especially when I'm in beast mode and there's like a good playlist in the class, I get into a zone and I go to those same places that a breath work could take me to. And I think it all comes from, like I've said at the beginning, connecting to my body at a very early age. And um, I think people don't really realize a three-year-old, even a two-year-old is capable of so many things. How many times have you seen on YouTube or a commercial, like little, little kids doing like crazy, amazing hip hop dancing and stuff? Some people are just naturally talented, but I also know for a fact that you can teach someone to move that way. Mm. And I'll say this. I also feel empowered to make a class my own experience. I really don't give the instructor 100% of the power. Mm. I definitely feel empowered to modify where I need to, ignore certain cues that I know aren't right for me that could cause me injury. I 100% make the experience my own, and I take and leave what I want. and especially as a teacher, there's a lot of people. And I think it just comes from preconceived notions about what a yoga class is or whatever. I think there's a lot of people who give the instructor a lot of power. And mm. then there's like, then you hear stories of a lot of abuses of power. I do not give the instructor a hundred percent of the power. They're there to hold the space and instruct and guide. 
But again, if I don't agree with something they're telling us to do, I don't do it. And I and never feel pressured to do everything in a class. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it feels, it sounds like you're really, like you're very self-directed when it comes to to getting what you need out of a movement experience. I just, I wonder what you as a, as a teacher, instructor, those people, I'm just thinking back to the person who like can't, you know, you said like doesn't know how to do a bicep curl because they can't connect, you know, the different parts of their body and time and space. And, you know, people who are really disconnected from their bodies for what, for various reasons. What is it like for you as an instructor sort of confronting that? Sometimes it can be frustrating because, yeah. uh, but then I have to put myself in their shoes and realize they may have spent, so the average age, I would say, of the students who come is probably under 30, maybe like 26 to 29. This might be, for some of them, the first time that they ever have moved. They didn't really do basketball, football soccer, whatever, in high school, played sports, didn't do dance outside of that. They're coming to class like in adulthood. Oh, I probably should start working out or whatever, whatever their reasons for coming. There's a variety. It's just so apparent they've been living in their heads their entire lives and not, again, like not even exploring different ways to move. And even you said it, I just see a lot of people who don't understand that there's parts. Your hand can move and your foot can move at the same time in totally different ways. Yeah, it's it's just really, really humbling to mm-hmm. have to break down movement and show people, you know, see your foot, it needs to be here. Make sure your toes point in this direction. Now send your knees over your ankles when you bend. Now, send your ribs in, soften in your shoulders, make sure you don't hold tension in your shoulders, now lift your arms like this. And I have to just break down the movements mm-hmm. little by little by little. And uh, there's a variety of reactions. Some people get frustrated. Some people are just like, I'm going to just try it, see what happens. Uh, some people start off frustrated and then they just get into it and then they start to just let go of any inhibitions and judgments and criticisms about themselves or me or the other students. It can manifest in so many different ways. And I would say it's in the past year that I've started to realize like any frustration or anger is just, I think it's just years of conditioning to hate our bodies. Like I kind of just always blame toxic masculinity in the end, Mm -hmm. but people come into classes, whether it's yoga, bar, Pilates, boxing, whatever, they come in with so many years of different traumas happening surrounding their bodies. And it can be really intimidating for a teacher to be like, okay, now burpees. And like some of the people in the class are just flying through it. There's so much of that. And um, I think what's most frustrating for me is I just wish people would just come in and be open to just exploring movement and try their hardest to just not judge and criticize and create a whole story around it. And simply just like be in your body and do that burpee like the best you can Mm -hmm. in that moment. Right. Right. And like you said, though, there's there's so many people who've experienced various traumas, a lot of them related to toxic masculinity in the end. Yeah, I totally hear you. But but that there isn't a kind of it's, it's so interesting talking to you because so many of the people I work with, for instance, as a psychotherapist are 
you know, have experienced so much body trauma um, Mm -hmm. in their lives. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of like simply being in your body is, it's not simple as you just described, you know, I mean, it's at, you actually are, are helping people to assemble the tools and resources to be able to move their bodies and be in their bodies. But yeah, but you must be holding in all of these different, you know, modalities that you, you work with and you, you must be holding or feeling how much you're holding so many experiences of body trauma. Um, I don't know when that kind of becomes most apparent to you. I don't know if it's when. Oh, it's it. very clear. When? Yeah, tell me. <laughs> um, I'm also an insanely empathic person. I'll say this, like I teach two classes, I go home and I'll take an hour and a half nap. Like I have to take multiple naps a week. It's not just like a Sunday ritual or something, especially days where I'm teaching like three or four classes. I have to sleep in between or I'm a mess. And I've also in the past few months really started to listen to a lot of advice from various healers who told me you hold a lot of other people's energy. And one of the best ways for me to take care of myself is uh, not pushing myself to go out a lot, especially after a long day of teaching. Mm-hmm. I don't make a lot of commitments to show up at people's events and things that I'm invited to. And it just comes from just being like energetically exhausted. And I honor that. If I want to be in bed at 9 p.m., mm-hmm. I am like 100% okay with going to bed at 9 p.m. every night because I have to wake up the next day and like show up for people. And um, I pretty much do the classes full out along with people. I go around, I give corrections, I give adjustments, but I'm doing the class full out and like high energy and yeah, like leading them through a practice. And then afterwards, like I crash trying to get better at doing a few rituals to protect my energy before and after class and get a much better actually at uh, doing those. And I do things like Sage, Palo Santo, get some of that off of me because um, Mm -hmm. it it can be really exhausting. And it comes in waves. I'll have a few months of people coming in, taking class, feeling good. And then there's like a shift in energy. And even before class, people may have a bad attitude when I'm signing them in. Even in the class, like walking out, getting angry, like it just kind <laughs> of, it, it's all over the place. I try not to take it personally. I understand they're coming in there with like all of their own shit that they're dealing with. Mm. So yeah, no, like I feel it. I'm aware of everything. I definitely, I'll say this. There's people who've come to me before class and said like, listen, I'm recovering from an eating disorder. I'm just not going to use the weights when we use the weights and modify where I need to. And this is just me like kind of dipping my toe into exercise. And so then I get a little bit of context of where they're coming from. And then there's people who come in and I'm checking them in for class and they can be really, really rude and nasty and like, um, kind of put a negative energy on me before I even start, it's actually much harder for me to deal with those people because I don't know where that's coming from. Right. Unless maybe after class they reveal something to me. So before class someone lets me know what's going on with them, then I'm like, okay, then I get where you're coming from. And if you walk out, I'll know why or something. But if they come in with an attitude or something, I just have to assume some other shit went down that has like nothing to do with me. Mm -hmm. So like 
it's on me. Um, I feel in the work that I do to get like better at like not taking those things personally. Mm-hmm. It must be really challenging. I'm, <laughs> I'm reminded of your, a very memorable Instagram post that has really stuck with me where you were instructed by your students actually how to oh, yes. end your class. I don't know if you want to <laughs> tell that story. A bit oh, no, I can't. How you reflected on that um, since then. I mean, I, I don't know why that's really, I, I actually do know why that's really struck with, stuck with me, but maybe you could tell that story. Well, I do want to hear why it's stuck with you, but I'll mm-hmm. tell. Um, okay. So I won't n- mention the school, but there's a really well-known art school in Manhattan that I got hired to teach one to two times a month, a gentle restorative really chill yoga class for the students. And it's just once a month during their like um, off period when no when no classes are scheduled. It's just for them to just chill out and de-stress. And twice, two different occasions this semester, a little bit of context, I never end my yoga classes with OM or Namaste. And personally, really, to be honest, I just think it's really cliche and I think it's done so much half the time. I don't even know if teachers really know why they're doing it anymore. I think it's just a really cliche way to end class. So I often end class by inviting people to offer gratitude to their body. I offer gratitude to everyone for showing up because it's commitment to make it there. And um, gratitude for just being in that room, practicing. And then we end with a deep breath in and a deep breath out. And twice I've had the students tell me, literally say, you need to end your classes with OM. And in both situations, I've said, why? They didn't have an answer other than, well, that's what you do in yoga. That's what they told me. P.S. I have a 300 hour training. I'm also trained in Ayurveda. I've spent time in India. Like, I think I know what I'm doing. I've asked why they didn't know why, other than that's what you do in yoga. Both instances, I asked them what OM means. They had no idea what OM means. And like, then there was a conversation around like the lineage of yoga in Sanskrit and why you say certain things and why you don't and what OM means and what all of the OM, LUM, VUM, HUM, there's, there's a whole science to it and a philosophy around saying these sacred sounds and also Sanskrit in itself has a sort of problematic history with the caste system and everything but I just let them know that you actually can end begin whatever your class however you want and underneath all of that is a lot of entitlement a lot of ignorance and again a lot of entitlement and it's interesting also because this particular school I've had a lot of run-ins with students that were really problematic really disrespectful a lot of entitlement a lot of pretentiousness and so um, I just also think of it as the universe kind of handing me humbling experiences to improve as a teacher but um, yeah in both instances uh, I found it really offensive that they were telling me how to teach my class, but also not even knowing what OM means and not knowing like why you would end a class that way. So of course I, and 
<laughs> one student, when I got into the discussion with him, he clearly was out of his league and wanted to end it quickly as possible and get out of there because I don't think he was really prepared. Because again, I reminded him, I was like, do you know how much training I've had? Like, I know what I'm doing. And let me tell you what OM means. And let me tell you like why a teacher actually can do whatever they want in the class. Yeah, really. And that hasn't happened in a studio setting. It's only at this one particular school. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I think, I mean, it's, it's wild. And yet I, it really, it feels like, I think the reason it stuck with me is it, it sort of speaks to so many different things. Like the, the kind of assumption by certain people that, that cultural appropriation in these, you know, kind of movement or healing spaces, wellness spaces is the norm is the, yeah, the yeah, yeah. Norm. and then yes. also undermining your authority as a really knowledgeable instructor feels connected potentially to just, you know, kind of the entitlement of these students. But I have to think it also has to do with, you know, you being a queerly, bodied person of color who is extremely knowledgeable about what you're doing and how does that make some of these students feel? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, you articulated it better than me. I, I'm not one of those, like when I'm thrown off guard, I'm one of those people who just wants to resort to being like, shut the fuck up, <laughs> but I can't do that as a yoga teacher. So I have to like do my best to really draw upon like the most articulate version of myself. But I, I think you said it even better. Um, that is a really good point. This um, such a normalizing of cultural appropriation in the context of yoga to the extent that people like start thinking they're the authority on it and that they can like tell the teacher how to run the class, which is mm -hmm. laughable. I also think there's an element of youth. Yes. Like these are people right. who were literally in diapers. Their eyes were barely open when I was like a junior in college. So they just are very, they're very young and discovering the world and learning things. And I think it's a, an issue of being very young. When you're learning something, then you think you're the authority on it. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it's just problematic on so many levels. And I tell the story all the time. The teachers who taught me Ayurveda, it wasn't a group of white people. It was doctors, some of them flying in from India to come teach us, some of them who originally from India but had made a home in the in the United States. They began the classes with all sorts of mantras. Every class was a different mantra or a different way of um beginning and ending. One of our teachers who's so respected, uh, you are completely silent when he enters the room and you are silent until he begins the class. And when you end the class, no one's allowed to leave until he's exited the room. And that's, he didn't say, oh, he didn't say namaste. It was like, that's what he did. And then some of our other instructors again, did mantras in Sanskrit, different chants in Sanskrit. Half the time I didn't know what they were saying. Sometimes I did. 
there's again no om or namaste and my ayurvedic training really taught me a lot about respecting the lineage of what you're about to teach it it came from day 1 and literally the first day of ayurvedic training they told us to be grateful that we have the opportunity to learn this ancient philosophy and science and that um, we had many lineages before us to think and like that's how it started so of course i was thinking as like how dare you come to me and tell me to end with ohm get out of here like that's what i want <laughs> that's really what i wanted to say <laughs> mm-hmm. 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 yeah yeah can you speak a little bit about what brought you into wanting to learn ayurveda and what that's been about for you personally it's definitely it's a practice first of all that completely changed my life and still informs my life so i spent years as a teenager with bad acne and eczema and then it went away in undergrad came back in grad school and then by the time i graduated grad school in 2006 i had horrible eczema that was just getting worse and worse mm. and something just as a precursor to this before all that, even as a teenager, I was really into tarot and um, astrology, and I kind of just dabbled in it. I would read my horoscope and stuff like that, mm-hmm. but um, it was like something intuitive. When the eczema just was at its worst, I just thought, I have like always kind of been into healthy eating, but I'm going to like totally revolutionize my whole lifestyle. I quit drinking, quit drinking coffee quit drinking alcohol, quit eating gluten, quit eating processed sugar. I went on a very strict diet and just started devouring any Ayurvedic book website that I could get my hands on. I visited an Ayurvedic doctor here in Manhattan. So that was around 2009. I just got very deep into it. And then in 2013, I started exploring different programs because I was really honestly tired of giving all my money to Ayurvedic doctors and herbs and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I just figured at this point, I could just learn this and like treat myself. And there's a lot of people who get into Ayurveda for those exact reasons. Mm -hmm. So I found Kripalu, which is in the Berkshires, and they had the kind of easiest program as far as logistics of studying and still working because a lot of programs you have to like leave New York to do them full time and I couldn't do that at the time Mm -hmm. so it was a year-long program done in 10-day modules once a month and it totally changed my life I loved it I had to study for the first time in a long time but I loved every minute of it and made some really really good friends people who are like my soulmates And I very much think that we had like past lives learning this together. Mm. So I graduated that program in 2014. And then in 2015, I went to India and I did this month long cleanse, which is called Panchakarma. And it's a five action cleanse. I won't go into the details, but it's pretty amazing. It's intense. It's one of the most intense things I've done. I spent uh, three weeks doing this cleanse and learned a ton about myself, actually. I thought I was going to learn more about Ayurveda and study with the doctors and everything. But it was like one of the most like pitta times in my life. Just a lot of anger came to the surface, a mm. lot of heat, a lot of rage. Just being who I am, I was like, this is all part of the process. Like, let it out. 
And then I came back and got more into teaching bar and yoga, but Ayurveda is very much my life. It's not something separate from my life. I live like an Ayurvedic life. I try all of the different healing modalities right along with the clients that I see. Mm. It, it will always be with me. It's not something that I just kind of ignore. Uh, and I, I've stuck to it, like rarely eat gluten. Coffee is something that like I cannot have an eight ounce cup unless like you want to see me go to a bad place. It, it's very much my life and I love it. It, it completely changed my life. Mm. Just for people who are listening and we don't, we don't need to go into, I hope it sparks some interest in Ayurveda and, yeah. and like figure it out, you know, for themselves. But it just for people who are listening, who I think are here, you know, might be hearing in part the ways that like, removing things from your diet changed your life. You know, I, I'm always mindful to kind of be thinking about also what, what you started incorporating into your life as well that Mm -hmm. went along with that. You know, I know because I know that Ayurveda is not just about like an elimination diet, you know, Um, um, but what are some of the things that you feel like some practices that you you adopted or some things that you've, or ways of approaching, yeah, your, your lifestyle that that also part of that? Um, So it's basically living in harmony with the rhythms of nature. So it isn't necessarily an elimination diet Mm -hmm. whatsoever. Yeah. It's also about your spiritual practices. So Mm. you should be meditating every day. Do I do that? No, but it's always like a lifelong struggle to incorporate it. It's, um, there's certain herbs I take to, like, I, I talk a lot about pitta heat, especially we're getting into summer, that's pitta time. So I incorporate more cooling things. So I'm going to start upping like cilantro and aloe and coconut and raw salads. And one of my favorite herbs is neem. And it's very, very bitter. I absolutely love it. It's excellent for getting heat, excess heat out of the body. Yoga is an excellent way to balance your doshas. And in Ayurveda, there are three doshas that make up your body. Everyone has all three in their body, but certain ones dominate. And they're vata, pitta, kapha. And bata, I would say for all New Yorkers, is probably the hardest to balance. So yoga is an excellent way to balance your mind, bata, and uh, meditation, moments of stillness. One of the best things you can do for yourself is a digital detox, even if it's just a weekend or a day of, uh, at this point, I don't even tell people, you know, the ultimate would be like a whole weekend without looking at your phone or email, but find that one thing you're addicted to, say Instagram, for instance, see if you can go a whole weekend without Instagram, see how that changes your mind. Mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of like, anytime you can do a silent retreat, even again, you don't need to go off to an ashram to do 10 days of silence, have a weekend where you don't go on the phone to mindlessly scroll and see what that does for your mind. It's all about just balancing air, fire, water, earth in your body and your mind. Mm-hmm. We haven't, I'm 
We haven't talked about breath work yet. I feel like we're yeah, going yeah, through yeah. The, the, <laughs> list of the, the greatest hits of your, your, all of the different modalities, but what is breath work? What brought you to breath work and what's, what has it been like for you to? Um, I actually, in high school, had this elective class called humanities and the teacher was basically like one of the most woke people way before anyone was into it. He was going to India and meditating and stuff in this small town in Texas that I grew up in, again, way before anyone else was into it. Now the town I grew up in has CBD, <laughs> like a CBD store. So like things are moving along. So we had this humanities class and there was um, an elective field trip at the end of the year to go do breath work. And I jumped right on it. And we just carpooled to this woman's house um, right outside of Austin and she led us through it and it was mind blowing and I didn't do it again. And then I saw it offered. So about 10 years ago, maybe eight, nine, 10 years ago, I saw it being offered here in Brooklyn and I went and again, loved it, blew my mind. I felt amazing. I didn't do it again. Finally, in 2016, I started, I was like, I'm ready for the next chapter. I'm ready for like the next step in my spiritual evolution. So I decided I'm going to commit to going more often. And it was amazing. I was going like twice a month, really purging a lot of sadness, but also feeling really energized and uh, energetically filled. I felt like my well was being filled. I found it to be very energizing, very inspiring. I would walk out of there feeling like the most creative, dynamic, expansive person. It wasn't a very heavy, sad experience for me. It was very uplifting. And I, that's when I just started realizing, not only do I like love what this has done for my life, but I want to spread it out to other people. So in 2017, I got trained in New Mexico with David Elliott. And again, that training was another like really inspiring, uplifting experience. And it became very clear to me, uh, I was meant to do it as a way to improve as a teacher Mm. because I found myself approaching that. A lot of people were at the training, I feel, to work on their own shit, like whatever stuff was going on with them, a lot of releasing of wounds and trauma. Whereas again, I went there not realizing it, but it was very much about like learning how to hold space for people. Mm-hmm. And um, mm. that's what I found myself doing and like getting better at kind of keeping up my energetic boundaries as an empath, rather than being drained by like 40 people unleashing their trauma. I felt like un- uplifted by it. And I think that's why it's been such an amazing journey for me as a breathwork teacher, because it's a new way for me to work with people and not get trained and actually learn how to like get better at it. Yeah. You're so, it's so interesting because you seem to be so open and curious to curious about how to, you know, be a better teacher, a space holder. And yet you also are, there have been challenges around being an empath, absorbing people's energy. And I'm just kind of wondering like, what is, what keeps you going towards continuing to engage with, it's, it's almost like, you know, dancing, then yoga, then like breath work and everybody that you're like 
diving almost deeper and deeper and deeper into people's kind of embodied selves in a way, you know, and holding space for that. And I mean, I think it's great. It's like so amazing to be a facilitator of that. But I just wonder, you know, what is kind of what what feels really energizing about it that that makes the I don't know, the the self all the self-care and upkeep that has to happen in order to be to be doing this work as an empath. I think I like the challenge of it. <laughs> um, I tell people this all the time. I didn't go into this work to help people. I think a lot of people say, I just want to help people. I didn't. I just wanted to get better at uncomfortable experiences. It's very clear to me that I just keep going because like the more you like sit in your shit, the more resilient you are. Whether I'm experiencing it or I'm like holding space for someone, I just get better at dealing with uncomfortable situations the more I dive deep. And I almost, I don't think of it on a conscious level, but the more I like experience these different modalities and be the human guinea pig for them, then the better I am at like showing up for other people. So I kind of have to like experience all this so then I can like understand where you're coming from. When again, you're in bar class and you're, and I say like lift your heel and you lift your foot instead. It's just all of it like helps me, yeah, show up for people in a better way. But then, but then at the same time, then I'm like, why do I need a nap like every day? So, you know, I'm not perfect at it. (laughs) I definitely could be doing better to like protect myself, but I 100% just like feel like this is what I'm meant to be doing with my life Mm -hmm. and the ways it shows up to validate it. Again, I I don't realize like how much I can deal with uncomfortable situations until it's happening. And then I realize like, oh, like I'm good with this. And like when other people are crumbling around me, then like I know how to deal with it. Maybe also, you know, I have a lot of cancer in my chart. I have like big cardinal energy. Like when the going gets tough, I can just like keep on fucking going. And I also think dance training has a lot to do with that. Dancers can like put up with a lot. Physically, emotionally, there's nothing like being in a rehearsal till 11 p.m. and you're exhausted, but you just like keep on going. It like is physical strength, but it's like emotional strength, spiritual strength. It just like really builds a resiliency in you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I I like I like your reframe on this idea of like helping people. This notion of kind of you as a you know space holder, healer, kind of bringing people along and really powerful for me also as a therapist to, to hear about believing in diving into the shit and diving into the really uncomfortable stuff and doing that yourself and also being totally open to holding space for other people to do that because you've experienced that as resiliency. You know, you've experienced the power of resiliency after that. And I think that, I just think that's really important. Like I'm thinking about your, like you as the version of you that had, you know, really bad acne and did, I don't know what you felt when that was happening, but then thinking about the version of you that was studying Ayurveda really deeply and and taking the time to do that and sort of finding a way to sit with the discomfort of trying things that 
did and didn't work and yeah, you know, yeah, really yeah, like yeah, going yeah. into it. And then I, I don't know, there's just something about that that seems, seems different from the rhetoric of, um, you know, a lot of wellness culture that isn't, you know, it's not necessarily about, it feels like there's a lot of spiritual bypassing or like transcending yeah, yeah. difficulty in a yeah. way. Yeah. Well, I mean, I also want to say that I only go so far as far as holding space for people. There's a certain <laughs> boundary that when it's crossed, then like I'm done, meaning I'm there to guide you, but I'm not going to like hold your hand and be the mom that you never had. And so like there's certain people who come in, like I can already tell, like I say mentally, like I absolutely will not let you like suck all the energy out of me in this class today. So, you know, there's certain types where it's just clear that they're going to take everything out of me. Those like energy vampires. So I like definitely put up walls, but I, yeah, I'll say this. I, I think there's like a preciousness to healing and yeah, moving I yeah. that I don't have in me, despite being like a cancer sun, Mercury and Mars. Like, yeah, I'm not going to be so precious about it. And I think that does not sit well with certain people who show up to my classes that is not for them. And then there's people who like totally recognize that mm -hmm. and are okay with it. So I will be there and I am going to hold this container for you to experience whatever, but I also won't be disrespected. <laughs> mm -hmm. So it, it's a fine line. And yeah, and I try not to say, you know, when people are really going through tough things, there's a part of me that's like, oh, this is just like your experience on earth. And it's all there to teach you because like, when things are really not well, that's not what people want to hear. So I kind of just navigate. There are certain people I know I can say stuff like that to them. And then there are certain people, it's very clear. That's just like not the right thing to say in that moment. Mm -hmm. But um, I do think a lot of where I'm coming from just comes from, uh, yeah, a resiliency, a willingness to be uncomfortable. Yeah. A willingness. I, I don't, you know, the people who show up to breathwork, they don't want to cry. They don't want to do anything. Uh, emotional they think it's like any anything nearing like spirituality and vulnerability they clam up they get mad or they just kind of shut down whereas I'm like a hundred percent open to it I will cry I will scream it's like I'm not embarrassed I'm not I don't have fear around it now sometimes like you have to go to coding school for two months then I would like break down and be I would hate it that's <laughs> but yeah, there's like, because I actually had this conversation with my therapist. I was like, I just don't understand. Like, just show up and like, go deep. And she was like, are you kidding me? Like, that's so hard for so many people. Mm. Yeah, I have a 100% willingness to, yeah, do, because like the Panchakarma that I did in India was very, it was one of the most intense things that I've done. You have to drink salt water and throw it up. You have to drink ghee and throw it up. And wake up at four in the morning and meditate. I was tired. I was hungry. I was exhausted. But like, I was like, I'm ready to do this shit again. Like, I can't wait to go back. All of it comes and then it just informs my teaching. For sure. It, it's like all there to teach me how to like be a better healer, a better teacher, all of that. Yeah. So I, I want to have time to hear about 
what you're up to and how people can find you. But I guess the, the last question I wanted to ask, it sort of circles back to the beginning in a way, the beginning of our conversation about, you know, the, the younger you, the, either the three-year-old or the younger you that started dance and had a lot of energy. But I guess, you know, I'm curious if you could, as your adult self, sort of go back and, and say something or convey something to that younger self or compel an adult in your life to say something Mm -hmm. that you wanted to hear? I love that question. I think if anything, anytime someone instructs me to like speak to my inner child, it's more about just giving her lots of hugs Mm -hmm. and lots and lots of hugs and cuddles and holding her tight I actually, I can't say, you know, like be free in your body because I actually still feel that I, I do that still. I, if anything, my inner child just needs like way more hugs mm. and yeah, like lots and lots of nurturing hugs. Yeah. I think, I think that's it. That Hugs are powerful. They can be. Powerful. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So, so tell us. How can the listeners find you um, and learn to keep up with what you're doing, what your offerings are? And I know you have some, at least you have some breath work coming up in late May and June. Mm -hmm. So the two best ways are Instagram and then getting on my e-blast list. So on Instagram and my website is Wolf Medicine Magic, and you can sign up for my email list there. I send out a weekly e-blast upcoming uh, events. Instagram is updated with uh, upcoming events, Wolf Medicine Magic. I have a breathwork for people of color at Maha Rose in Greenpoint, May 10th, Friday night, May 10th. And then Saturday, May 18th is breathwork and vision boards. It's an entire day at Maha Rose. So the 10th is exclusively for people of color and it'll be a two hour breathwork. And the 18th is open to all folks and um, we'll be making vision boards. It's not too late just because the new year's over. You can still make your vision board and we'll be doing breath work. All of that is on my website and Maha Rose's website. So my website again is wolfmedicinemagic.com or you can go to maharose.com and you'll see all of the info. Cool. That's so great. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time. Super nice to talk to you and learn more about your life and your resilient, energetic spirit. So thank you. Thank you so much. I've, I've had a great time. Okay. Thanks, Regina. 